Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know when you read about how much your body benefits from eating smarter, including healthy proteins, being keto-friendly, or maybe just being more conscious with your calories, they usually don't tell you that you're nearly required to become some sort of amateur chef or at minimum, spend a lot of time searching for recipes and ingredients. That is, unless you know about Factor. The ready-to-eat meals at Factor are not only delicious, but they're great for you. And they can also be ready in just two minutes. Do you have two minutes to feel so much better about what you're putting into your body? I bet you do. There are over 35 different options to choose from. There's no prepping, no cooking, no chopping ingredients. You just heat it up and enjoy it. Factor is full of fast, premium options, and being a part-time chef, not required. Head to factormeals.com slash 10MM50 and use code 10MM50 to get 50% off. That's code 10MM50 at factormeals.com slash 10MM50 to get 50% off. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. February 14th of this year was the three-year anniversary of the Majory Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in Parkland, Florida, a massacre that left 17 people, students and teachers alike, dead, and an entire community wondering how after all of these years, after so many enough-is-enough enough moments, something so tragic could occur again in our community. It's hard to talk about a school shooting and not at least dabble in Columbine and how gun control fits into all of this. So we'll talk about that some as well. 10-Minute Murder contains depictions of actual crimes. What you are about to hear is real and violent in nature. Discretion is advised. This is 10-Minute Murder. Welcome to 10-Minute Murder. I'm Joe, the host, and thank you for being here. Periodically, I'm going to do longer-form episodes, and I hesitated about that at first, seeing as the show is called 10-Minute Murder. But the John Wayne Gacy show was longer, 
is currently one of the most downloaded episodes out of nearly 100 that I've done. So I think you all must be pretty cool with it. I considered doing a spinoff show with only longer episodes, and while that's still in the realm of possibility, I'll only do it on occasion here. In case you haven't figured it out yet, this is going to be a longer episode. It might be harder to digest at times, so if you normally listen while doing the dishes or to keep you company while you work from home, I ask that you give a little more of your time today. Here are the facts of the case. On February 14, 2018, a lone gunman arrived on the grounds of Majory Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. He carried with him a backpack, a rifle case, and a semi-automatic rifle. In the end, he killed 17 people and injured 17 others. The victims' names are as follows. 14-year-old Alyssa Aldeff, 35-year-old Scott Bagel, 14-year-old Martin Duque, 17-year-old Nicholas Dorrit, 37-year-old Aaron Faze, 14-year-old Jamie Gutenberg, 49-year-old Chris Hickson, 15-year-old Luke Hoyer, 14-year-old Kara Lundgren, 14-year-old Gina Montalto, 17-year-old Joaquin Oliver, 14-year-old Elena Petty, 18-year-old Meadow Pollock, 17-year-old Elena Ramsey, 14-year-old Alex Schachter, 16-year-old Carmen Shintrup, and 15-year-old Peter Wang. In addition, 17 more were wounded but survived the shooting. 12 of the victims died inside the building, 3 died just outside the building, and 2 died in the hospital. On March 17th, 2019, 13 months after the shooting, Sydney Aiello died by suicide after struggling to attend college. Her fears of being back in a classroom mixed with her survivor's guilt and PTSD overcame her and she took her own life. These similar fears plague many of the survivors to this day. The perpetrator, Nicholas Cruz, A 17-year-old former student of Stoneman Douglas was dropped off by an Uber at 2.19 p.m. right before dismissal. A teacher said he was spotted walking purposefully toward Building 12, a three-story structure with 30 classrooms and around 900 students and 30 teachers inside. This was cause for alarm, as Cruz had been expelled from the school for disciplinary reasons a few months before. Cruz pulled the fire alarm a move that confused the students who had gone through a fire drill earlier that day. Once the alarm was pulled and students began evacuating, 
a staff member reported hearing gunshots amidst the chaos and swirling sounds of the alarm. The school, like many in America, existed in a post-Columbine world, one where the answer to school shootings was not stricter gun control, but more cops and schools. For Stoneman, they had an armed school resource officer by the name of Scott Peterson. This was a big push for schools to have in light of recent school shootings in the following years since Columbine. It seemed like the most logical answer to some. Unfortunately, security camera footage would later show that the only person there to protect the students against an attack like this retreated to a safe area and advised first responders over the radio to maintain a safe distance, a move that he was highly criticized for and was later charged for negligence. Most of the time during an active shooter threat, especially in a school, the protocol for first responders is to swarm the shooter through force, a move that was clearly not utilized here. A common misconception about many school shootings is that there's this big drawn-out event. I remember hearing about Columbine in 1999 and thinking that it was an hours-long showdown, but in reality, the events at Columbine took less than an hour from start to finish, and at Stoneman Douglas, it only took six minutes. During those six minutes, there are countless stories of heroism and selflessness that are still being told by survivors. Geography teacher Scott Bakel was killed after unlocking a classroom for his students to hide in during the shooting. Aaron Faze, an assistant football coach and security guard, was killed after shielding two students. Chris Hickson, the school's athletic director, was killed as he ran toward the sound of gunfire and tried to help fleeing students. After the six minutes were up, Cruz halted his fire. Some assumed that this was because his gun got jammed, but we know now that he dropped his rifle on the third floor and then blended in with the hordes of students fleeing the school. Student footage filmed on cell phones show the mass of students leaving the high school as the surrounding officers instructed them to put their hands up to prove their innocence. He slipped away in the chaos and walked to a nearby fast food restaurant where he stopped to get a soda. He then continued on foot at around 3.01 p.m. During this period of time, those who made it out of the school could only wait to see if their loved ones survived as well. Some would be reunited, and others would not be so lucky. By 3.40 p.m., Cruz was stopped in the Wyndham Lakes neighborhood of Coral Springs, about two miles from the school where he was arrested. On February 15th, the following day, Cruz was charged with 17 counts of premeditated murder and was held without bond. On March 7, 2018, a grand jury indicted Cruz on 34 charges, 17 counts of first-degree murder and 17 counts of attempted first-degree murder. He was placed on suicide watch in an isolation cell after the arraignment. Soon after, he would confess to the murder and within the following months, a video confession would be leaked to the public by TMZ. The video would show Cruz crying and through tears exclaiming at the camera, Kill me. Cruz is currently sitting in jail and has been apprehended on assault charges against an officer from a scuffle inside the prison. His trial was initially scheduled to begin on January 27, 2020, but was delayed to allow his lawyers more time to prepare. As of right now, the trial has been indefinitely delayed due to restraints caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. And those are the events that transpired in the case. This is what we know. And maybe if this was some normal episode, I would stop right there. 
But in order to understand the full scope of this story, we have to talk about how we got to this point. On April 20th, 1999, a mass murder at a Colorado high school would garner such a huge reaction to the society at large that its name became a synonym for school shootings. Twelve students and one teacher were murdered at Columbine High School, which made it the deadliest school shooting in U.S. history at that time. The nation watched and wondered how something so horrific could have happened and how we were supposed to proceed from there. In the wake of the event, the myths began. In the podcast, You're Wrong About, hosted by Michael Hobbs and Sarah Marshall, they discuss how our public consciousness and perception of Columbine has become a skewed one through the portrayal in the media and our own partial intake of those stories. When something consumes our news cycles like this, it becomes hard to get away from. We pick out what we need to hear in order to understand it, regardless if the facts are fully present. And as time presses forward, we instill those ideas we've picked out as facts. This is the case for many media events, but Columbine was no exception. The narrative at the time was filled with stories of the perpetrators cast as misunderstood victims of bullies, members of a so-called trench coat mafia who were influenced by the spoils of late 90s pop culture like Marilyn Manson and the goth culture. The truth is, the perpetrators were bullied, but in a way that most people to some degree are victims to bullies in the nature of high school. They were not members of the mysterious trench coat mafia, and based on my own experience, goth kids, although much different than me, weren't inherently violent. They just looked different. And that's kind of the point. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. But by looking different, that draws the bully's spotlight sometimes, and they become a target more often than not. And while Columbine did call into question the nature of bullying, which was and still is a problem and shouldn't be downplayed, It's important to note that in the aftermath of Columbine, it included a national conversation about bullying and the cancellation of Marilyn Manson's summer tour, which again, anti-bullying is great and Marilyn Manson is an alleged rapist, but tellingly, less than two weeks after the events at Columbine, the NRA National Convention was held in Denver, Colorado, a 30-minute drive from the high school. The beginnings of the gun control reform were sown in the wake of Columbine, but not much was accomplished outside of the social movements, or not as much as those involved would have liked. In 2000, federal and state legislation was introduced to require locks on firearms, as well as a ban on the importation of high-capacity ammunition magazines. Legislation to close the gun show loophole, a method that bypassed many of the restrictions put forth on purchasing a gun, passed the Senate, but did not pass the House. And as these things often do, the next national news story took over. But the discussion of gun control didn't begin with Columbine. Perhaps it can be traced back to 1934, when crime boss Al Capone convinced Congress to pass legislation that required all gun sales to be recorded in a national registry in an effort to regulate who owned firearms within the country, which, to be honest, seems a little off-brand for him. And by 1949, after the first large-scale mass shooting occurred, where 13 people were killed by a lone gunman in New Jersey. People started facilitating conversations about gun control that look a lot like the conversations we're having today, only stripped of one crucial aspect, the idea of the God-given right to own a gun. 
but we'll get to that. The gun control debate started to gain real momentum in the 60s, following the assassination of JFK in 1963 and Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968. All of this led to the Gun Control Act of 1968, which prohibited the sale of mail-order guns and banned all convicted felons, drug addicts, and those considered to be mentally incompetent from owning a gun. And the NRA was actually pretty cool with this. Not thrilled, but apparently they understood. This all changed in the 70s, when new leadership stepped in to represent the association to protect gun owners. As crime rates began to rise, mixed with the rioting and protests of black and brown communities, white people got kind of scared. They started arming themselves more and more as an attempt to feel a sense of protection, which, potentially racist inclinations aside, that is every American's right to feel protected. But something interesting started happening through the new leadership at the NRA. This was the first time that gun ownership was equated with American freedom. The NRA really tapped into the Second Amendment rights and never looked back. Suddenly, it was masculine to own a gun. It was powerful to own a gun. And bottom line, it was American to own a gun. Now, let's get this out of the way. I personally own a gun. I choose to own a gun. And that is a right that I fully support. With the rise in consumerism we saw in the 80s, it only makes sense that it bled over into gun ownership as well. And suddenly, the 1986 Firearms Owners Protection Act was implemented, a move that basically rescinded the majority of the legislation put forth by the Gun Control Act of 1968, and more or less led to the polarizing issue of gun control we see today. Of course, none of these acts touched on assault weapon sales, which didn't become a huge phenomenon until the mid to late 80s, when the Chinese unloaded a good amount of cheap assault weapons onto the American market and sales began to take off. It's become a cliche in itself to say this, but since Columbine, mass shootings in the U.S. have become commonplace. But truly, since Columbine, we have had so many similar movements of enough is enough. Sandy Hook, Pulse, the Aurora, Colorado theater shooting, just to name a few. It keeps happening, and every time it does, we say we need to do something about it. But the solution is never massive gun reform. I don't care where you fall on the spectrum of gun control because everyone is welcome to their opinion, and I'm sure I'm not going to change your opinion because I'm a guy with a true crime podcast, but as I continue and pivot to talking about the perpetrator, I hope you'll seriously listen and see that things could be different. Nicholas Jacob Cruz was born on September 24, 1998, in Margate, Florida. He was adopted at birth by Linda and Roger Cruz. I'm not going to waste time talking to you about who he was outside of the crimes very much, because honestly, it doesn't matter. What I'm going to do is paint for you a picture of a boy that exists in pockets all over America. A boy that simultaneously slipped through the cracks, and yet was predestined to fall through the established cracks in our system like so many others have. Nicholas's adopted father, Roger, died in 2004 and left Linda to raise him on her own. As early as middle school, teachers reported that Nicholas displayed behavioral issues. There are varying reports, and I'm not going to speculate what that means, but one teacher described him as being disruptive in class, with some of his actions including outbursts and even sporadic dancing. 
And what's kind of remarkable about this story is that Nicholas wasn't pushed to the sides and ignored. The adults in his life really tried with him. They were concerned. Even his mother knew of his problems and was explicit in getting her son the help that he needed. Records show that over the years he was referred to individual and family counseling. While parent conferences were held and social workers were called as his behavior got worse, people started noticing and were worried. He was sent to in-school suspension and was even sent off campus. Over the course of three years, he transferred school six times, which in and of itself is a very destabilizing situation for any kid. But with each passing year, things only seemed to escalate. In 2014, he was transferred to a school for emotionally disturbed youth and was recommended to receive help from a residential treatment facility on several different occasions. State investigators would later report that he displayed signs of depression, autism, and ADHD, but concluded in their assessment that he was at a low risk of harming himself or others. Amongst students, Cruz was, for lack of a better word, one of those kids. An anonymous student who was enrolled at Stoneman at the time of the shooting said that, quote, I think everyone had in their minds that if anybody was going to do it, it was going to be him. The it in question being a school shooting. In September 2016, the Florida Department of Children and Families looked into Nicholas after he posted to a Snapchat story a picture in which he had cut both of his arms and said that he was planning to buy a gun. In fact, he talked about guns a lot. Other reports said that his social media was rife with photos of long knives, shotguns, pistols, and a BB gun. And when you add that to his own aspirations to join the military, an affinity for harming animals, and a whole slew of extremist, racist beliefs that manifested in the form of internet chat rooms, YouTube comments, and a swastika drawn on his backpack, you'd probably think that this is not someone who should be able to buy a gun legally. And yet... In February 2017, Nicholas legally purchased an AR-15-style semi-automatic rifle from a Coral Springs gun store after having passed the required background check. And let's pause there because that really deserves a moment to sit with you. Maybe you're thinking, well, there's no record of him behaving erratically outside of his confidential school reports. And if you're thinking that, then this will shock you. After the events of February 14, 2018, Sheriff Scott Israel said that his office received 23 calls about Cruz within the previous decade, which in and of itself is not a very promising number. But CNN did some digging to obtain a sheriff's office log, which showed that between the years of 2008 and 2017, at least 45 calls were made in reference to Cruz. On February 5, 2016, an anonymous call was made saying that Cruz threatened to shoot up the school. And on November 30th, 2017, another caller described Nicholas as a school shooter in the making. And of course, these are just two examples of those calls. Countless others with varying degrees of worry were made to police. And yet, they didn't seem to really care. He was regarded as another troubled youth and swept under the rug. The same thing happened for Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris, the perpetrators of the Columbine Massacre. It's a pattern. We could sit here for hours and talk about everything that happened to Cruz in the months leading up to the events of February 14th. We could get into the racist, homophobic, and sexist things that he said online and probably said out loud as well. We could talk about his erratic behavior 
and how one of the schools he was transferred to raised such an alarm that he was not allowed to wear a backpack on campus. We could even speculate on how his mother's death three months before the shooting may have further negatively affected his mental health and drove him to do what he did. But we're not going to do that because it's all out there for you to read should you see fit to do so. And I encourage you to do your own digging if you'd like, but for right now we're going to move on. We're going to pivot to the aftermath and the response from the families and the community that was affected by this tragedy. In the documentary After Parkland, a documentary that if you feel mentally sound enough to watch is truly worth your time, we followed the lives of several individuals, mostly students and parents, who were involved and had their lives transformed by what happened. I use transformed here because for many of these students, they were thrust into the public spotlight and the national conversation before they even hit adulthood. Seeing the faces and hearing the voices of those involved made this story more vivid to me and placed it in context outside of the black and white typography and flashy news reports. The Stoneman Douglas administration canceled school for two weeks following the shooting. I'm sure everyone used their time differently. Some took the time they needed, some sat and reflected, while others used their anger and outrage by speaking to the media and greeting the story head-on so it couldn't be twisted. And those who did choose to speak made it very clear they were in mourning, but overall, they were angry. Not necessarily at Nicholas, although I'm sure many were, but angry that once again we were in this place, a place where the safety of our young people has been corrupted once again through lack of action from those in charge. And after Parkland, we follow the lives of several students as they return to campus transformed by tragedy. On the first day back, the skies were overcast, not traditional for a southern Florida town, and the school was colored by the flashing lights of a massive police presence, one that many students questioned upon returning. While there are variants in participation, it's important to talk about the campaigning and the movement that began following the shooting, a movement brought forth and helmed by young people. Protests erupted nationally, and on March 24, 2018, the March for Our Lives took place nationally, with 880 sibling events in solidarity occurring all over the world, with an estimated turnout of 2 million people in the United States alone, making it one of the largest protests in American history. And the event was powerful. Students across the country participated in classroom walkouts, some laid down in protests on their campuses, while others marched with signs and chants. The message was palpable. Many had a sense that this was the beginning of a turning point for gun control. And in some cases, it really did lead to new, important legislation. Also in March 2018, the Florida legislature passed the Majory Stoneman Douglas High School Public Safety Act. The bill raised the minimum age for buying firearms to 21 in the state of Florida and established waiting periods for harsher background checks. In addition, it created a program to arm teachers, which I guess your right as an American extends to feeling however you want to about that. And those are all huge achievements, but perhaps bigger than what anyone in the government could do. The biggest effect was, once again, the social movement. To me, it signaled a change of the times, a gathering of tomorrow's generation standing up to the adults in charge, and demanding to be heard, demanding to be witnessed. Signs from teenagers saying, if I die in a school shooting, forget the burial, drop my body on the steps of the Capitol. People were angry. In After Parkland, we are shown a meeting with the survivors of the Stoneman Douglas shooting 
at the White House. It features a silent Trump and a stone-faced Melania nodding along with the victims of gun violence, and parents of victims speak out through tears and the frustration of their government. In a New York Times article by Michael Schulman, he discusses a production of the musical Spring Awakening, a rock musical based on a late 19th century German play called Spring's Awakening, a Children's Tragedy. The story of Spring Awakening deals with the consequences of parents leaving their children blind to the harsh realities of the world and ultimately adults not protecting their children. While guns aren't at the center of that story, and instead unprotected sex is the danger at hand for teenagers in that musical, the message rings clear and the parallel themes are hard to ignore. In fact, Stephen Slater chose to adapt the play as a response to the Columbine Massacre. As described in the article, in a South Florida strip mall, tucked behind the Dunkin' Donuts, a production of Spring Awakening, featuring several survivors of the Stoneman Douglas shooting, was being rehearsed. And now, it's 2021. Any freshmen who were present for the shooting are now seniors. Some of the founders of the March for Our Lives have moved on to college. David Hogg and Jacqueline Corrin are students at Harvard. Cameron Caskey now attends Columbia University in New York. Emma Gonzalez is studying at the New College of Florida. To say that they've lived through it and can move on would be an injustice to the survivors and to the victims. We've seen the House of Representatives pass gun safety legislation for the first time in over a decade, while states across the country began passing stronger gun laws. And while COVID has taken over the news of our daily lives, there is still so much progress to be made in order to keep our kids and communities safe. There have been 25 mass shootings in 2021, according to the Gun Violence Archive, as of the airing of this episode. While most of the shootings had between zero to two casualties and a highest of six, it's still such a part of our culture. So take what we've talked about today and remember that all of these true crime shows and podcasts exist within this world and are not exempt from similar discussions. I hope you can take something away from this episode. And please remember the lives lost during this senseless killing. today's story. Much different than the normal 10-minute variety that we usually do here, but I felt this one was warranted and needed more time. I'm going to put sources from some of what you heard today in the show notes of this episode, as well as credit to Adam Messenger, who is a big contributor to many of the episodes that you hear on 10-Minute Murder, this one included. He does amazing research and is a talented writer. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast before you go so that you don't miss any future episodes. You can also connect with me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening to 10 Minute Murder. Have a good night. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 